Bote. Yakana Hey. Welcome to season two. Yes, you heard us right. Tiny, they ready? I don't think they are ready yet. Here we are with the new season, with new guests from across the continent, sharing the most inspiring entrepreneur journeys. We got Libya, Zimbabwe, Ghana, and so much more. Welcome to season two of a series of Am. Okay, everybody. Habari. My name is Ninja Halen from the Green Heart of Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I'm so excited to have you here. With me is my day one, my baby girl. Patience, how you doing, girl? Oh my gosh. I'm super, super excited, Benja. You know, I'm just out here with the energy today. Uh, Aquaba. And Jumbo, it's a girl, Tiny, healing from the beautiful Lone Star Republic of Liberia. Y'all gonna be stuck on my country's name, located on the coastline of West Africa. <laughs> and want to welcome you to a series of Anne's. A series of Anne's is a show about entrepreneurial women in Africa. On this podcast, we celebrate tastemakers in business who are continually innovating, empowering those around them and slaying in style. Why? Because we are all more than one thing. We demystify what it takes to start, grow, and run successful businesses and organizations across the continent. We talk to boss women of all backgrounds from CEOs, business owners, policy makers, uh, analysts, taste makers, influencers, the whole nine yard. Okay, we're talking about African girl magic queens in this piece right here. <laughs> so today's guest is Tamadul Almadi. Tamadul is from Libya and she's our first North African guest to come on. Hey. Let us give it up for Tam. Oh We're God. so Benja, excited. First of all, Benja, just hold on a second because it's giving what it's supposed to give. Okay, y'all gonna put respect on Libya's name. <laughs> Thank you. Again, we have Libya in the building. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited to have Tam with us today. Um, Tamadur is the chief of staff at Speter. Speter is an award-winning health tech startup providing access to healthcare for over 2 million people in conflict-affected countries. Tamadur has also been recognized by the U.S. Department of State as a Tech Woman Awardee in 2022. She's also been recognized by Deloitte. If you know Deloitte, you know if you know, as one of the women leaders in Africa in 2022 as well. And by UNDP as one of uh, women in innovators um, in the Arab region in 2021. Yo, when we tell you we are not bringing small fries on this podcast, we are not bringing small fries. So we wanna welcome Tamadur to the podcast. Hey, so Tam, give us a quick intro about yourself. What are you working on? Who are you? Give us a small, you know, quick elevator pitch before we dive into it. Okay, first of all, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, absolutely love your energy and, and the work that you do. Um, so my name is Tamadur Al-Mahdi from Benghazi, Libya. I'm a pharmaceutical sciences graduate. I have always been passionate about the intersection of healthcare and, and technology. Mm. Um, I'm currently the chief of staff at Spitzer, um, an electronic digital health startup where we provide access to 
healthcare services in, in conflict-affected areas. Um, I basically oversee strategy and make sure that um, our operations are aligned with the strategy that, that we set. Um, my career has been always been um, driven by my commitment to, to women empowerment, and that's something you could see from um, my previous work experiences or, or collaborations with mm-hmm. um, local or um, international organizations in order to empower women, especially in the tech sector, as they uh, navigate their careers. And I'm very happy to be with you. Oh, my gosh. Awesome. Well, listen, Tam, if there's one thing we know for sure is that we we know that you are A, a superstar, B, you're doing like such important work. So I, let's just dive in. Let's just dive in. Let's start all the way from the beginning. Where were you growing up? Like, where did you grow up? What was that environment like for you? Where was five-year-old Tam? And, you know, what did she want to be? What did she want to do when she grew up? <laughs> Um, so I, I grew up in, in Benghazi. Uh, this is where I lived my my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember a part of my, um, my childhood, we've spent a lot of time traveling within Libya from city to city, basically, because of my um, my parents' work and, and all of that, um, in addition to visiting extended family. So, um, mm-hmm. so we've always had that aspect of um, traveling, and I used to get really excited about the whole concept of um, uh, of traveling, especially with the car. It is something that I used to enjoy a lot and I still enjoy. Uh-huh. T- Tam likes a good road trip, guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, when it comes to school, I went to um, um, a public school. Um, I used to go, like, it was very close to my house. Um, and and now when I when I think about it, it was a girls-only school. And mm. I went there until until high school. And it's just sort of like when I think about it now, um, I've been mm-hmm. within communities of, of women growing up. Like we've had only female teachers. Um, um, so yeah. so it's, it's really interesting when you think about it that way. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing. The other thing was, um, so I, I grew up in a house where... I don't have any brothers, oh, wow. so, uh, so we're, we're five girls. And I, I think I was lucky because I grew up in a sense, um, in an environment where I was told that I could be anything that I wanted mm. um, at the time. And, um, and, and my mom is a gynecologist and um, sort of like seeing her work, she was a, a business owner and mm-hmm. um, she started like her own private clinic at the time and it wasn't mm. something very easy for especially for women mm. during that time we're talking about the um the 90s um maybe the late 80s mm. um so sort of seeing her overcome so many challenges in the society um breaking stereotypes i i had no idea what a stereotype is at the time but yeah um, but it was very difficult for her but at the same time like seeing her do what she does mm-hmm. inspired me to Mm. do my own thing a part of me wanted to become a doctor but then uh-huh. um when i was just um i think around the year 2013 mm. um when i was just starting to to get into university uh-huh. um the war in, in Malghazi have started um i was i wasn't sure if i wanted to go into medicine um i knew that i was passionate about the healthcare mm-hmm. sector yeah. and that's something that um 
I found mm-hmm. inspir- like I found inspiration in, mm. and but I was sort of doing a math equation. Yeah. If I went into medicine and giving the war and all of that, it was going to take me years to sort of the country wasn't stable and mm-hmm. it sort of affects your choices and what you need to do. Mm. Um, so I've been thinking of like what would make sense for me to not leave healthcare, mm-hmm. but at the same time not do medicine because I'm not very passionate at, at, about the whole concept of becoming a doctor. I so resonate with that. <laughs> you know what I Because mean? I'm, I'm also the same way. I was like, this, this, how many years am I going to spend? How much work is it? I'm talking to the same people about the same issues daily. Like, this isn't for me. That's why I went into public you know what, health. Tim, you, you... <laughs> You resonate with every single African child whose parents were like, you're going to be a doctor, an engineer, or a, or a lawyer. Those are your only choices you have in life. And so if you go outside of that, we're going to disown you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Tam said, no, thank you. I don't want to be nobody's doctor. All yeah. right. So let's take it, let's take it a step back, um, Tam. Back to sort of, um, you know, your upbringing as well, I think. You know, growing up, definitely you saying that, you know, you went to like all girls schools, that's sort of your educational background. I don't know how you were able to do it because Tam, see, I think my mom, my mom would have paid for me to go to all girls school, but she knew (laughs) I wouldn't be able to survive. I need to see boys in that school with me. (laughs) So, uh, and I love the fact how, you know, growing up as a child, it seems like your, your family invested in you and your sisters quite well like your gender you know, did not play mm. a factor in that especially having a mom who was a doctor I think that's a that's a, a, a great blueprint and example as a girl child to right. see that women can do anything to put their minds to it regardless of what context they find themselves in so I'd like to know while your while your nuclear family was very sort of pro gender equality and women's rights that seems to be you know a threat in your family how was the external factors were growing up in Libya, in Benghazi, mm. you know, going, uh, looking at cultural norms and, and cultural practices, were there any uh, sort of gender biases and gender barriers that, that affected you as a child outside of your, you know, your family? Like how, the, how the rest of the community, you know, um, received you? Um, so that's a very interesting question because, um, I remember, at the time, like, you know, sometimes your home or your family uh-huh, could work uh-huh. as a bubble sometimes that sort of um, protects you from the, the, the outside mm. norms, let's say. So I, I had no idea that such thing existed until I remember around the seventh grade or, or the eighth grade where I've had, like, sometimes classmates who would just... It happened to, to, to like I think two or, or three girls at the time where I remember we were in the ninth grade and, and and sometimes like the person would just disappear and they would say like that this person got married and oh, wow. um and they would for example like meaning they would not continue their education. Mm-hmm. And it has left me thinking like, um, is this normal? Um mm. so these sort of things do happen at the same time. Mm. Um, I remember, like as a kid, sometimes when we want to go play out, or or sometimes it could happen in, in gatherings and yeah. all of that. And you would hear something like, "No, you're a girl. You're not supposed to play outside. Uh, you're gonna play inside." Mm. Like boys, like um, 
around the same ages as me would be allowed to <laughs> sort of go out and, and do something different. Yeah. And I didn't quite understand, like, where is this coming from? Why is this person allowed to do that? And sometimes I would wish, like, I wish I was a boy, so I would be able to go out and, and play. But as a kid, you never really understand, like, it's not something tangible. Yeah. You know there's a difference in a way, mm. um, but it's not something tangible because you wouldn't be able to, to comprehend it. But it was there, like, until when um, I, I remember, like, when you're around the ages of, of 17 and 18, you start to understand how, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is certain norms on what are you expected to be doing what are you expected to be studying mm. um what sort of career path or lifestyle you end up doing is all affected it's affected a lot by um by society and by the norms and and even if you even if you become mm. resilient to what you hear from society like sometimes you build your own narrative but yeah. you can't really escape it yeah you, you can't like no matter how many Yeah, you can try to change it, but you can't. You, you're not gonna change it, obviously, on yeah. your own or in a mm -hmm. in a day or two. It's gonna take yeah. ages for us to mm -hmm. make those um, those beliefs. Um, but but we're we're trying. <laughs> so Tam, for me, growing up, I I lived mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. I lived in about seven different countries, and when I come to think about it, I. I know that, you know, the issue of like child marriage and having child brides is something that happens not only where you are in Libya, but it, it is pretty yep. pervasive in the continent. And I don't think I had ever encountered it. So what kind of conversations were you having at home with regards to like your mm -hmm. classmates literally disappearing? You know, what was that like when you went home and tried to talk about it with either your mom or your uh, aunts or your uncles? Like, what was that conversation like for you? So one thing I remember is like just being shocked at the thought that this person is not gonna, is not coming back. Mm -hmm. And basically like, for example, Our, our society is very diverse. So sometimes like in certain families, mm -hmm. um, child marriage is in that they, and, and it depends a lot on yeah. where city are you from as well, because sometimes you can see this happening in certain, um, in certain cities or villages, but, yeah. um, but not in the more quote unquote civilized or, or, or whatever um, word we're going to use to describe. But I remember like, If I talk to my, 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 especially my aunts or my mom, or mm -hmm. um, they would yeah. make sure they know that it's not okay, that it's not something that they approve. And mm -hmm. even if certain discussions were, were brought up, it's, um, it's like something that is shameful, that this person is very young, they didn't even finish um, school. So it's not something that we accept yeah. in our household, let's say family or extended family, but it depends a lot on where you're from. I think now, so I have no data to back this up, but I think now we're doing mm -hmm. a lot better than, for, like the current generation is doing to a sense mm -hmm. better than um, how we did like yeah. a decade yeah. ago. Let's say. Mm. And, and, I, and I honestly like, like the fact that like you're saying your, your mom and your aunts did not condone it. Because a lot of a lot of what I have found in African traditions is that even when the tradition disenfranchises women, you will find that it's women who continue to uphold that tradition. 
you know? So I, I fully think about stuff like FGM and how it's something that, you know, women continue to perpetuate on other younger girls, on other younger women. And it's something that we, we know we, we widely have it as, as, as unacceptable. One thing I would add here is that, again, like, especially in Libya, we don't have, like, much data to sort of prove whatever mm. I'm, I'm currently saying. Um, but from my own personal experience, and as I mentioned, mm. like, my mom is a gynecologist, and she's in a position where she would meet, like, different types of women across all ages, and sometimes she yeah. would come home and tell us about, especially when we're older, and and, and, and she would, she's, like, surprised and, and would talk to us about um, certain cases that she sees sometimes, like women who aren't even 18 with three to four children, and sometimes they're divorced and they don't work. And um, so it's mm-hmm. it's very bad. Mm. Uh, and again, I don't have data to sort of back this up, but I'm talking from personal experience. Um, it is there. I'm not sure how, mm. how big yeah. the issue is, but it's still there. Thank you so much for illuminating to our audience a little bit about what what growing up for you was like. So if we can transition a little bit more into what Tam was like in high school, right? So I know you mentioned that you moved around a little bit. Um, what did you mostly get in trouble for okay. as, you, as you were growing up? I'm curious because sometimes, you know, you meet people and you're like, this one has never done anything wrong. This one is <laughs> God's angel, eh? Allah's favorite. Right? You understand? I want to know, like, Tam, for you, as you went through high school, like, what was that experience like for you? What did you mostly get in trouble for? Because I want to know. <laughs> Okay, Tim, it can't be Binge and I only being the ones getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in my case, I was um, a straight A student. Mm-hmm. I would never get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And I used to like just uh, the, the, the teacher's pet, um, uh-huh. get like very good grades, um, overachieving, all of that. I think the only like rebellious um, moment I've had like in high school was when they sort of uh-huh. so we didn't have a uniform and then they made this like decision at school you're supposed to wear this and this and this mm-hmm. and I didn't like it <laughs> so uh, I've made some rebellious I've had some like for example you can't force me to wear this I want okay. to wear whatever I wanted and, uh-huh. and, and yeah it was the only it, it was the only rebellious moments I think I've had in high school, but I mean, that's because I mentioned I was a very, I was the teacher. But all of my uh-huh. teachers are still my friends and uh-huh. my mentors, obviously, and I talk to them. And yeah. <laughs> Binja, Tim was like, I'm going to follow the straight path, but when it comes to my fashion in school, I am going to slay. You're not going to tell me how I'm showing up. Right? <laughs> I will always slay. See Tim, you're 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 better. You are a better a better teenager than I was. See, if I went to a school like that and they're trying to dictate to me my uniform, I probably would come to school with a little crop top on <laughs> and a little skirt. <laughs> yeah. So like now, when I think about it, like I understand like why a school would ask uh-huh. students for a uniform. Like it makes sense because it's a school. It's not a fashion show. Right. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't, like, I couldn't get it. Like, 
So, Tam, as, as, we're, as we're transitioning into end of high school, um, I know you mentioned as we started talking that you really still have this interest in healthcare, right? Um, so in high school, were there specific classes that you took? And then did those help you get into the university that you got into? And kind of like, what was that process like for, you know, most people who have no idea what, you know, selecting classes in high school, how that influences how yeah. you get into university, like in in Libya, for example. What's that process like and what was that like for you? Did you have enough support or the, you know, guidance counselors or, you know, you're now here thinking I want to be a doctor or I want to be in the health field, but I don't want to be a doctor. Like, what was that process like for you? Okay. So basically in Libya, like during, um, so now the system has changed, mm-hmm. but at the time, um, once you finish the ninth grade, you're supposed to choose between sort of two main majors. Mm-hmm. So you're either going to go to more on the literary track, like literature and all of that, or you're going to go into science. Yeah. And basically, once you go into science, you can either go into medicine, engineering, or a literary track. I, I chose medicine, so at the time, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure like which specialization in medicine I wanted to go mm-hmm. to but I wanted I knew that I was going to go to healthcare mm-hmm. so I went to a school for mm-hmm. quote-unquote gifted students uh-huh. and and basically this, you don't choose like which subjects you're going to take and then once you finish high school uh, based on which um, percentage you get you would be able to go into the um, to the major of your choice mm. so we have uh, at the time we have two universities um, in Benghazi. Mm -hmm. One of them was for um, the sciences. The other one was uh, more general where you find engineering, literature, sciences, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I I decided that, as I've mentioned, like I'm not, I I don't want to become a doctor, especially like, as you've mentioned, you know, how in in, in our families, it's either you become an engineer or a doctor or you're, there's always a joke about it, or you're a disgrace to the family. So I, I started to think of pharmaceutical sciences as an option. I've done, we had no counseling or whatever, um, but I did my own research. I knew that there's like the business aspect to it, that you could be creative about the career path that you choose to yourself. And that's the way I thought about it. So I've chose pharmaceutical sciences, um, I started studying here for like one semester, but then um, in, in yeah. 2013, the war has started. We were um, displaced from our home. University has closed. Like it seemed at the time that life has um, stopped and you, and the thing is like, you don't know, like, is it mm-hmm. temporary? Is this going to take years? Mm-hmm. You never know. Like you, you can't tell. Um, so at the time I've had my aunt was doing her PhD in, in Egypt and, and she sort of like threw in this recommendation like would you be interested in coming in and studying here with me because I have. Mm. So it was a very hectic and long journey. I ended up studying in Egypt for, for two years. I went there around November and the school has already started since mm-hmm. September so I was very late in the semester and I on my first day, I sort of saw uh, that they've had like the schedule for the finals and it was my first day. Like, oh man. Other students were preparing for the finals. So it was crazy. Yeah. It was um, 
it was it was very bad. I was so stressed, and I'm, I'm sure I've had like some mental health issues at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, it was crazy, but I did manage to survive mm. those two years, and I loved. It. it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, and I know that it has shaped a lot who I am today because mm. we were spoiled. Like I had. Both of my parents had cars, mm-hmm. so we don't use like public transport or anything. But in Egypt, it was different because I had to use public transport every day. Uh, in addition to like navigating a new city, um, right. the different accents, all of that, mm. like, so it was very challenging, but it has shaped me a lot. Oh my gosh, Tam, thank you so much for sort of giving us more insight, you know, to that experience, um, you know, going through sort of a, a civil war or internal conflict or revolution, whichever way you want to look at it um, in your context is not something that the, that is easy, especially when you are displaced and having to now navigate yeah. a new space, a new culture, you're, you're forced out of your comfort zone and your place in situations where it tests your resilience and your strength and your ability to be flexible and adapt into a new setting. And it seemed like you did. Yeah. Even with the hiccups along the way, you did a phenomenal job, like, you know, you know, really um, taking on the challenge yeah. and looking at the silver lining within your experiences. And I love, you know, what you just said, like you find yourself in a new context. You have to now navigate these different, you know, challenges that it brings, but you didn't allow it to make you give up or be pessimistic or take a, a victim mentality mindset. You looked at the situation, you looked at the challenge and, you know, you try to address it in the most um, healthiest way possible, even though it, it was tough, it was difficult. And I can definitely re- resonate with that because I'm somebody who also went through a civil war in my own context and having to be forced out of my comfort zone, you know, and put in situations that were very extreme. And it tests, you know, it, it really builds your, you know, your character. I think, you know, as a, as a, a child, an adult, or whatever, whomever, whatever stage, you know, you are in your life. So, so just, Tam, I, I think before we move on, um, just a couple of things in terms of what you have articulated in terms of your experience. When you talk about mental health, I think it's really important to, to talk a little bit about like what that was like for you mentally, because moving um, from a conflict zone, I don't know if you had to abandon family and friends, and then try to adapt to a new place with the same, obviously you as being an excellent student, you're probably putting the same pressures of, I have to succeed regardless of the setting, regardless of the disadvantages, the disadvantage status that you're starting off as. Like, what was that like for you mentally? Because you did mention that that was, you know, a tricky time for you. Um, so this relative I stayed with was my aunt. She was my mom's sister mm-hmm. and she was a lot like my mom. So in terms of, um, family support. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. feel that much of a, um, a difference. Um, but one thing which has um, mm-hmm. stayed with me a lot was when I was um, when I was just mm-hmm. starting out at university, and, and sometimes I would talk to mm-hmm. get to know new friends or um, colleagues, and mm-hmm. and they would know that from my accent that I wasn't mm-hmm. Egyptian. So they would ask me like, "Where are you from?" Mm-hmm. And then like, "Why are you here?" Um, the thing that has affected me a lot that people. Mm-hmm. have no idea yeah. about what's going on back in Libya. Like your entire city could be torn to the ground yeah. and the world has no idea. So um, so it, it has like, it has left me thinking a lot like, um, yeah. 
because it's not fair. Like in a sense, you think like we're struggling back home yeah. and people are um, are losing their homes, they're losing family yeah. members, and the world has no idea. It was very intense. Um, so that's that's one thing I have um, mm-hmm. I have been through, which was difficult to to navigate because mm-hmm. people had no idea that you're struggling. Mm. So that's one thing. I remember coming across. Um, so many colleagues and and friends who've been of mm-hmm. a great help. Like they would share their notes, um, they would walk me through their lessons or classes. So I think having that sort of community yeah. to to support you and to help you, yeah. that you know that you're not alone, is very important and has mm-hmm. helped me has helped me a lot. That's awesome. That absolutely makes sense. I think you know, it, w- whenever you find yourself in these sort of difficult situations, having a community, having sort of a support system of people who you know, may share similar experiences as you or even different, but they understand, you know, they can walk a mile in your shoes. Um, it makes the journey a little bit more bearable and it puts you in a position where you're you're better able to succeed when you have that, you know, that support system. So um, I was wondering, is there a specific course that you took, you know, at the university in Cairo that was very pivotal for you and that helped um, shape sort of a different way of looking at the career that you that you wanted to you know you wanted to um explore after you know after graduating i've had like a pivotal moment but it wasn't uh, in cairo it was when i went back home in, in benghazi in 2017 so one pivotal moment was in my third year in university and i was mm-hmm. at my finals i was studying for analytical chemistry and I came across this announcement on, on social media that an organization called mm-hmm. She Codes were, were just starting out their work. And they were basically targeting young women who had no experience in coding yeah. whatsoever for them to enroll in the first boot camp. So it was sort of their minimum viable product at the time. They were just, mm-hmm. it's a pilot. They were just testing it. And I um, I remember seeing it and I applied immediately. Back in, in high school, I remember we've had a, an IT class where um, I remember one of the, um, the assignments we've had was building mm-hmm. a website for books. And it was very interesting. I loved the concept of yeah. researching and then implementing that research into the code that I've written and seeing mm-hmm. the results. Um, so I've enjoyed that a lot. And and then when I saw the um, uh, the, the she codes announcement that they were just starting out, I was thinking, hey, this could be interesting. Yes. So I did apply out of curiosity. Sure. I didn't think that was gonna be something. Um, and mm-hmm. I did the interview, and I loved the vibe. Um, um, mm-hmm. I remember we were around 16 women, and as I've mentioned, it was a pilot. The program or the bootcamp itself was not very organized, Mm -hmm. but it came in sort of a way that um, they're sort of helping you build the, um, a technical entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I remember on day one, they were, um, they've uh, gathered us into teams. So um, I was a member of a team of four people and we were Mm -hmm. supposed to ideate a solution for a problem. Um, it has to be entrepreneurial and it has to be a technical solution, like you're sort of providing a solution using technology. Um, and I remember we came up with the idea of providing a mental health, um, a platform that provides oh, wow. access okay. to mental health solutions. And that was our, our, our idea. 
Now, we gave it a name and throughout the program, we were implementing mm-hmm. like we, whether it's building an application, a demo, obviously, mm-hmm. or a website for the solution and exact. So I remember we've had a one week web development course, a one week app development course. We took a marketing mm-hmm. workshop. So it was like a very comprehensive mm-hmm. two months boot camp where I've had no business context or technology context before but now I've started to think of like wow we can use technology in order to provide a solution um, in any field basically. After graduation I've applied to another program that was targeting um, young or or like fresh graduates who had like entrepreneurial ideas within their field. So I remember like I've applied and at the time I was working at a pharmacy like a local pharmacy and I've seen like the daily challenges people face whenever they're trying to get a very simple service like and we're talking about healthcare we're not talking about a privilege we're talking about like something that people are gonna need Mm -hmm. on a daily basis Mm -hmm. like it's not it's a right not a privilege so um coming across these problems every day helped me okay why can't we bring a solution in order to help these people who are yeah. so, so for example chronic patients who take mm-hmm. their medication on a monthly basis like they need to come in and refill why can't we do a system mm-hmm. and people would automatically get those refills um, especially when you see like old people coming so um, so i started to like sort of pinpoint all of these mm-hmm. problems and how can we solve them using technology and uh, again i applied to which was targeting graduates and my entrepreneurial idea was Mm. basically providing um, an Mm -hmm. e-pharmacy company or an e-pharmacy project that was uh, solve these Mm. issues and um, it continued and I did manage to launch um, a minimum viable product during the the COVID-19 pandemic but the thing is Mm -hmm. like I was very young I had no experience and the, the team, we didn't really get along. We had different visions. We were coming from different yeah. backgrounds. So I didn't, we, we didn't see eye to eye. So I really didn't see this, like, mm-hmm. something that these aren't, and, like, again, no hard yeah. feelings, but these aren't the people that I want to continue to work with. Um, and obviously, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because it's very important. And, and you guys know, like, having, like, your team is more important than whatever you're, you're doing. Team matters. The people you work with absolutely plays a key role on the success and the experience um, of that collaboration. So how did you um, sort of manage some of those challenges? How did you mitigate some of those challenges in order to to have sort of a a very um, successful outcome with the initiative that you had? So I remember like, again, like working with team members who do not see eye to eye, who are, so to be an entrepreneur, you have to be very optimistic like no matter where you're living how many challenges you have Mm -hmm. but you have to be like at your core an optimist Mm -hmm. and that's something i i live by today and the thing is like um team the challenges i've had with the team like sometimes Mm -hmm. i would deal with a very pessimistic person who'd say okay how can you do this is this even like do people even want this um and i would get very intimidated because i was the youngest i was the only woman in the team and I would get very intimidated by these questions. Like, it, like I would defend myself, but then when I'm at home and I would think about the situation, mm-hmm. like maybe they have a point. So yeah. it's very challenging because you listen a lot. So it's very important for you to protect certain aspects that should not 
be shaken by what others have to say but I was very young at the time and like like my whole um, self-esteem wow. is down to what these people told me yeah. um, so there was a lot of self-doubt uh, there was a lot of imposter syndrome but at least I knew mm-hmm. um, I loved what I did like especially when it comes to Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I did a lot of market research. I, I did a lot of what I do now, but at the time I had no idea it was called market research. So I would do things, uh-huh. I wouldn't know the professional context they fall in. So basically this program would usually give us a weekly assignment where we'd have to present. And it has helped me a lot because for example, they would ask us, um, present an inspirational story present an for example a, a big company that has used yeah. or, or leveraged technology to improve its solutions so i've done like the more yeah. you see the more that you know that you can do things um so in, in a lot of cases it's not really about as they say reinventing the wheel because there are so many brilliant out, ideas out there yeah and the mm-hmm. entrepreneurial aspect is how you're going to make that work in a very difficult environment such as libya so i think that is where entrepreneurship actually lies like entrepreneurship is making certain solutions work in a very challenging and a difficult environment such as Libya. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about what that's like Tam Um, because you mentioned you know what it means to be an entrepreneur and just for full transparency here how old are you Tam because I know you keep saying like when you were younger but I don't think people understand that you're not like 50 oh <laughs> how old are you 27 wait a second Ben can you ask your question because I gotta I gotta do a drop mic moment okay first of all we are ridiculously impressed you know <laughs> by you tam like at, <laughs> at such a young age you've already done so much than most than most of your counterparts in other places and so i just want a mic drop moment this is african girl magic this is what we say when we say on a series of ends african girl magic this is what we're talking about okay tam is the epitome of african yep. girl magic and a series of ends go ahead bitch i just did that moment <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, I know, I know, Tam, I, I call out your age purposefully because um, one, as Patience has clearly mentioned that like, it's incredible what you've already accomplished. But two, you being able to not only identify that like, okay, the group that you're in or the team that you're working alongside of isn't necessarily the team that is going to help you become successful. But you also identify that like, you were internalizing a lot of what was going on um, with the team, even if externally you were showing up and doing, you know, your quote unquote job internally, you were still wrestling with, like you mentioned, like imposter syndrome. You had some doubts about whether or not what you were saying was actually what it is that needed to be done. I want to know a little bit more about um, how you overcame that in particular, because If you don't understand anything about me, I'm a girl who like fully believes in quotes and I live by a lot of quotes. And there's one that says, if you feel that you are not confident, then you must outwork the things you feel insecure about. So let's talk a little bit about like, how did you outwork those things? Because one, I know you mentioned you had a lot of presentations. So if I can take from that, you know, kind of putting yourself out there continually, and you also did a lot of research, but was there anything in addition to those things that you feel like propelled you forward? Did you have any champions around you? Did you have any mentors? Like what, what do you think it 
was able to get you through this time or get you through, you know, having these doubts about who you are and how you deliver in the workplace? So um, I remember like I've had one mentor tell me that your confidence mm-hmm. is something that you're going to gain over time. Mm-hmm. The more experienced you are, the more confident you're going to become. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take time. Right. But the other thing that you should never let anyone mm-hmm. change how you see is your worth. So, for example, when you're in a room, you should never yeah. doubt that you do not belong in that room. Yeah. And that was very important to yeah. me because I didn't see it at the time. Like, I expected that um, maybe I'm not in the right place, maybe... Um, and and recently, like, I've struggled with this a lot. But at the same time, I think mm-hmm. as you grow up and as you become more experienced, and again, like, putting yourself out there is very important. Like, for example, when yeah. it comes to public speaking, the more that you speak, yeah. the more that you're going to become confident. So, um, yeah. so I'm not the kind of person really enjoys the spotlight I don't like it mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm not even comfortable um like I yeah. become very uncomfortable when it comes to like giving credit and, and all of that but even if you don't like being in the spotlight it's very important mm-hmm. for you to to grow mm-hmm. people need to know about the work that you do so that's that's also um very important like putting yourself out there yeah thinking um I remember I've read a lot of books and was Mm -hmm. Um, One of them was called Emotional Agility. It was saying like a lot about the growth mindset and how how you perceive, like it's not a failure unless you don't learn from it. So if you think at at every experience Mm -hmm. from a growth perspective, like um, even if I failed this project or um, I failed this presentation or I failed my team, like how, what is the thing that I'm going to learn from this experience and what is it that I'm going to take with me in the future. So um, when I started to think of this Mm. a lot in in all of the things that I do, I think I've started to become a little easier on myself uh, because I'm very hard on myself and I'm sure so many resonate with that. Um, Mm. It it also tells you that you should um, speak to yourself like you would talk to your best friend like if your yeah. best friend fails what are you going to tell them and it's obviously going to sound a lot different from yeah. what were you telling yourself yeah um so i think like learning and like just not tying your worth to what you accomplish or what you because you're worthy whether you accomplish something or you're not like your worth is not determined by what you do or what you accomplish in life yes and i think it's very important for you to distinguish those things because uh, because if not, you're going to be very hard on yourself. And obviously in life, you're not going to be successful all the time. Like failure is yeah. essential mm-hmm. to growth. And growing up, and as I've mentioned, like and a top student, you sort of become like a yeah. very anxious adult, <laughs> like whether at work, you want to be number one. Whether it's, yeah. um, so so I've yeah. struggled a lot with that. Like it's not a competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no longer compare myself to anybody. I'm just it. doing my own thing. Yeah. And yeah, things have changed a lot, especially when you're talking about yeah. the last two years. Like things have changed a lot from how from how they were back then. No, I absolutely I absolutely love it. And you know, I especially I love when you said this, um, 
I think it was your mom or your family had told you that you're not going to, you, you aren't going to gain your confidence in one setting, right? The more you put yourself out there, the more you practice, the more you take up space, the more, you know, the more yeah. you, you explore new experiences, that's when you start to gain your confidence little by little, slow, you know, it may be slow, it may take some time, but you're eventually going to gain that confidence and it's going to be more sort of emboldened and, and sustainable. So yeah. I'm so happy when you ended it with, you know, I stopped yeah. worrying about being competitive. I stopped worrying about wanting to be first. Yeah. I stopped, you know, worrying about how do I look like in this space? What are people's perception of me? Mm. You know, what I'm saying? And you started just being more yourself. Yeah. You know, being more yourself, not worrying, not giving a damn anymore and saying, you know what? I belong here. I'm going to do my best. And that's what matters the most, <laughs> right? For me, I think <laughs> one of the things that the older that I've gotten, the more I realize is grace that I don't give myself is grace. Um, you said something so crazy to me that like, it really hit me when you said how you talk to your best friend yeah. and how you talk to yourself are like two different things. You know, patients can tell you I am her champion. Patients will tell me I have this going on. I'm like, no, you will do it. We must focus. You can do this. And then when it's something to, to, that comes to me, I'm like, yeah, I really don't know. And the self-talk that you have for yourself versus the talk that you have for, you know, the person that you're cheering on, your best friend, is completely different. And I think the difference yep. is that, yep. like, we don't give ourselves mm -hmm. as much grace as we give those who we love. And I think it's it's something that, as you've mentioned, it's something that gets cultivated over time for as long as you know, you're not learning from something, then you can say, okay, yes, I failed. And for as long as you're not continually trying to give yourself grace, I think that's when we block our own advancement. We block our own ability to receive even from our community, right? Because you wouldn't believe what the people around you are saying. So I really appreciate you really talking through how that has you know, been beneficial for you because it is important for us to know that and, and, and for whoever is listening to us today to know like, you're great. You literally can do this. And yes, we're here on a podcast championing you, but like give yourself the same amount of grace you give others. Oh my gosh, Tam, like that, that just hit me. That, that hit me so, so personally. <laughs> okay. We're having Nelson Miller moments here. Okay. <laughs> I'm telling you, Tam is, Tam is taking us to different levels today. So Tam, talk to us a little bit more now that we're, we're getting to, you know, Tam has walked her walk. She has been in two different countries. She's already worked with She Codes. Let's talk about Speeter now. Let's talk about who they are, what they do, what you do for them. I know you gave us a little bit of an intro. Um, and it, to me, from hearing the intro to now seeing your journey to this point, I'm like, ah, so she definitely was interested in healthcare, definitely fell in love with tech. And then we now meet Speeter. So talk to us about Speeter, about what you do. And then patients, don't worry. I haven't forgotten. We have not asked her about money. Okay. We're coming. <laughs> We're coming. <laughs> so um, I've started working with Speeter back in 2000, like, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it was mm -hmm. late in 2020. And I remember like seeing um, this job application, which I did not qualify for. Um, but for some mm -hmm. reason, I applied <laughs> anyway. And it, was, uh, it was a marketing position. Um, I remember applying mm -hmm. and 
because it was interesting at the time as i've mentioned like mm-hmm. it was a very difficult summer because i obviously like my project which i was very passionate about has failed or did not continue in a sense i was also applying to mm-hmm. um to a grad school program which was my number one mm-hmm. like plan mm-hmm. and i did not i haven't been accepted into the program so all of my dreams were shattered that summer and the the interview was very was very cool and one of the um um one of the things that made me like really appreciate um the the team was mm-hmm. when i was having the interview we have had like very terrible internet connection we had no electricity and the interview was supposed to be done online so i remember that i was very anxious that i'm not going to have electricity at Um, and I remember like the interview on WhatsApp and my internet would oh my um, would just disconnect during the interview and I would get very frustrated and then I've had my which is my uh, current manager um call me like um mm-hmm. um through international lines mm-hmm. and it made me really appreciate being in that interview because maybe somebody else would have just mm-hmm. canceled the whole thing or said it's yeah. on another day but he was very committed that we get it done during that day. Then I heard back from them. The team was very small. It was around like four people. Mm-hmm. And um and I've started working in this quote unquote marketing position and there was no team. <laughs> you are the department and the team. On my first day they were telling me you're going to have uh, a meeting tomorrow with this very important client mm-hmm. which is going to help us with marketing and and all of that and I had no idea like I had no idea what this company does. Who is the team? There was no team. Mm-hmm. And you can't do marketing on your own. So it was very stressful experience. Mm. And but I I I there was a lot of freedom in a sense because as I've mentioned there's no team, there's no process. So it's it's ultimately up to you to move things around. So it's very different from right bigger organizations with yeah. a set process for everything, set people for everything. One thing about me is that I'm very good at googling things. Let me tell you, University of Google and University of YouTube. Exactly. Even further now with yeah. ChatGPT, like I'm living the dream literally. Yeah. But at the time, for example, I would write in Google like how to prepare a marketing strategy, yes. how to prepare a social media plan, <laughs> and I would mm-hmm. basically follow whatever those yeah. articles yeah. were saying. and i would <laughs> i would execute that in my work i was learning as i go and i was implementing and there's as i've mentioned like there's a lot of freedom to sort of execute mm-hmm. because there's nobody else mm-hmm. my my manager which is the ceo was like um one th- one month later they were saying oh no we 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 love what you do and we're very proud to have you and all of that um and then like on my second month and third month i've realized that they were giving me tasks that had yeah. nothing to do with marketing and because <laughs> and because yeah. I was I was learning I didn't say no because as I've mentioned I love the team and I love the that that the fact that it was a small company I was very passionate about the mission and again like I was doing yeah. things that aren't marketing related like And then I noticed that my job was shifting right. from marketing to doing everything else. And um months after I've started working with the company like I've had um my manager come up to me and tell me like I want you to become to transition to the chief of staff role and I was testing you quote unquote the past period and I think we were really well together and, and all of that. And I said yes. 
and um, and it's my current position to to this day and it's it's very personal because um, it feels like as you yeah. grow the company grows with you so as I've mentioned we started off with five people and now the company has over 60 people oh wow and yeah it, it happened in mm-hmm. like two years or one year and a half um a lot of as I've mentioned, like what I loved the most was mm-hmm. creating things from scratch. Um, there are no rules to follow. I was creating yeah. my own rules, and at the same time, like thinking, how can we, how can we replicate this? So, like, I'm sure if you're familiar with building a company, a lot of it is just like yeah. creating a process yeah. and then replicating that process. So. Everything I tried to do. So I've worked across mm-hmm. all possible business functions, um, whether it's operations, whether it's marketing, whether it's business development, whether it's strategy, whatever. Um, so I was working at all of those. And what I've, again, like what I've enjoyed the most was setting up a process. It's going to change and iterate over time, but it's something that I have oversaw and sort of created myself a lot of the time on my own. So um, in addition to like bringing mm-hmm. on awesome people, and I think that's one of the most things I value a lot, is that like I have interviewed, I think to this day, over maybe 100, 200 people. I, I, I've stopped counting, but like having interviewed so many of the leaders that we currently have at our company, like mm-hmm. doing their own thing, leading their own teams, um, has been very a very extraordinary experience because you're not only growing, the company is growing yeah. and the people at the company are growing too. Yeah, it's amazing, Tim. And I think, like you said, I mean, it's incredible that you started with a company at four employees, I believe. And now within the span of a year and a half or maybe two years at the most, you guys have now increased your your, your personnel to about 60. And that, that says a lot. You know, I think also from your leadership as a chief of staff, you know, having oversight, you know, in bringing these new um, employees on board, getting them assimilated into the into the company, and you creating that, you know, that operational processes to ensure that their work is also moving efficiently. So I like to know, like Tam, how has that been? You know, as a woman, you know, serving in this position as chief of staff, um, what is the reception from your other um, team members and colleagues and peers? within the organization and also or within the company and also outside of the company when you are um, interacting and collaborating with external clients and partners? Does gender play a role um, within that setting or has it been sort of an an advantage uh, for you as well? So I think when I was just uh, starting out, it was a little intimidating because um, as you've mentioned, like sometimes lack of representation um, like being the only woman in the room sort of makes it harder for you to either to speak up. So I think it's very important to work within a supportive environment, like and and for this environment to be intentionally mm-hmm. supportive of women, yeah. to not just like do it haphazardly. But these people were had in mind, this is a woman that we want to see more of that we want to support so she could bring the value that she has the potential mm-hmm. to bring on so so like it all starts with in your management and if they're intentionally supportive of women and i think that's very important like when we were setting up for example our, our strategic objectives um for the year we've had like certain metrics to make Absolutely. sure that there is representation of women so now 
um, today our team, like over 60% yes. of our team are women. So that's number one. We have over um, 40% and executive leadership Absolutely. are women. So I think we've come a long way, but um, making sure that you have certain metrics to to track and to sort of hold yourself accountable to, like, am I actually delivering the things that I say that I stand for, or am I just saying that I support women and, and that's it? So I think having like, and, and this is like one of my mentors, one thing one of my mentors always say that, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Um, so having like clear measurements that you hold yourself accountable to, whether it's representation of women in your organization in general, whether it's representation of women in senior leadership is also very important. So Tim, the incredible work you've done, you know, working with uh, Speeder and sort of the recognition the organization or the company has gotten, because I, I remember seeing it, you know, featured in Forbes magazine and just, you know, the magazine raving um, some really good reviews um, on the company and the and your CEO and so sort of his vision and priority areas. And I would like to know, I think the role that you play in the organization is quite critical. You started from a marketing, a marketing role. You've now rose into a, a chief of staff role, which is quite incredible. You took the company from just being a startup company of four employees to now 60, you know, within the span of a year and a half at the very maximum, you know, two. And that says, that says a lot, you know, of your own leadership, your own sight and your vision too, as a chief of staff. Um, so I'd like to know, you know, how has your role, um, your gender role play a part in this, um, in this setting, you know, given your, your, your cultural context in Libya, a lot of times, you know, women, all we need is the opportunity for somebody to believe in us. If just give us that opportunity for us to prove and show like what we're capable of doing. And I'm so happy that your CEO saw that in you, saw that potential, regardless of your gender. Um, so I would like to know now that you're chief of staff, like how has your gender role um, impacted your ability to really succeed in the company to move the company forward how are you received both internally with your your colleagues and your peers and also externally to various clients and partners as well so again as i was um i was uh, saying earlier um starting out it felt a little intimidating especially like sometimes you can have a title and the, the title could empower you but the title is obviously mm-hmm. not everything um, mm-hmm. So um, lack of, of women representation creates a certain, maybe a barrier or a fear being a lot of the times the only woman in the room. But on the other hand, like having a very supportive mm-hmm. environment, which is intentionally supportive of women is also very important. And that was something that was very obvious in, in my case. Um, so whether it's my my manager or or the team, they were very supportive and they were intentionally supportive of having women representation in, in leadership. Um, so that's so that's one thing. The other thing is like as I've mentioned earlier, like becoming more confident is something that's gonna take time. And maybe starting mm-hmm. out, I wasn't very confident, but now like sometimes you would think that. Um, people are not taking me seriously. Um, sometimes um, I would need pressure from others for certain things to get done because my voice is not heard. Sometimes, like, mm-hmm. and I think that's something like it is very 
common in, in so many women that we are not yep. very authoritative mm-hmm. and that's something mm-hmm. that we not see happening with men. So, um, so I think I encountered so many of those issues and a lot of the times people are not going to help you and you're going to have to, and it's unfortunate, but sometimes you're going to have to help yourself overcome certain things and certain yeah. challenges, whether it's yeah. from the way. Yeah. I remember reading a book. Um, it was by um, Harvard Business Review for, for women at work. And I have this mm-hmm. very interesting um, sheet where they compare like mm-hmm. sentences women would usually say versus how you should say those sentences to sound more confident and authoritative. Yeah. Uh, so for example, I think we should do this, but for you to be more authoritative, like I know, or I believe that we, so so like using the word think, or um, yeah. I'm assuming, or um, uh, sorry, can I add in? So like it's, it's engraved in who we are to sound very apologetic and that's something that you learn, yeah. like the way you speak about yourself, the way you defend your ideas is very important. And, and these are things that mm. unfortunately, unless you have like a mentor who's been in the same position as you, mm. they're not going to notice. So like sometimes you would hear like, I want you to be more authoritative, but it's not really just that you have to and so I, I remember, like, I've never thought about this until I've actually seen it written down in this book. Like, this is how yeah. you sound, yeah. and this is how mm-hmm. you should sound if you want yeah. to be seen as a manager or as a leader. And nobody talks about this. Yeah. So I think, yeah. um, not I think, I know that. Um, so There we go. There we go. Um, so my, you might have heard me say, I think I'm going to change it to I know. Um, because something I'm yeah, practicing, yeah. obviously. Um, but sometimes you need somebody who's been in the same shoes as you for them to give you this yeah. this advice. If not, you're gonna have to look for it yourself, which happened absolutely in in my no, absolutely. You know, Tam, um, one of our guests from season one, I think she said it very um, in such a powerful way, but it was so profound and simple. Um, she's our guest from Swaziland, Linda, and she's and I always refer to this is that you know. Let other people count you out. Don't count yourself out. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I, and I feel like this rings true right here within your experience. Like you said, you didn't have any background in marketing. You saw this position, vacancy opened. You applied. You know, you applied to where you had to Google to figure out, like, what the hell does this even mean? Right? <laughs> like, what are the expectations here? You know, you didn't count yourself out. You put yourself out there. You're like, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to go for it. Regardless of whether I have the expertise or the experience right now, I'm just going to put myself out there, you know, and, and, and not count me out and let them count me out. But I'm yeah. going to show up, take up space be as confident as I possibly can, you know, and know that I can also contribute into this space. One thing to add in really quickly, I remember when I was, um, again, changing from marketing, like I've done a lot of Google research on marketing that I would understand like whatever you, I was saying. But I remember when I was joining the um, the business meetings, like with actual business people, I had no idea. Like sometimes they would use certain... Um, certain shortcuts or <laughs> or certain like words mm-hmm. 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 and you would find me like in the meeting at the same time like googling whatever yeah. they're saying. 
yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know, the thing is, especially in healthcare, people love to use like the colloquialisms of the field. And if you're new, oh, my God, you are absolutely a fish out of the water because you're like, what is it? HSA, BMA, BAP? And you're just like, oh my God, what is this? Right? And then you just type in, in healthcare. What is it? In healthcare? I'm like, I have no clue it's what like, these people are talking about. Um, somebody would bring on the word CAC and I had no idea like what that word means. And I would look it up yeah. and it's the customer yeah. acquisition cost. Uh, I'm like, oh, now I understand what they're yep. saying. And it would right. go on. <laughs> Let me tell you. Right. When you're starting off in your career, Google people. Google is your best friend. Yeah. Like, do not be embarrassed. All of us yeah. have been through it. Like, we've been all been through the process. Yeah. We become expert by just graduating from college, just hitting the ground running in our field, right? Like, and Google will be your friend. So, absolutely. Like, there's no shame in our yeah. game at all, okay? Yeah. So, let me take a little bit of a different tack here, uh, Tam. Two things struck me. One, you're extremely well-read in the sense that even even looking at your Medium account, I, I don't know, I will, we'll make sure we plug it into into um, our description box here. Uh, but it's it was so interesting to me to see how much you read and how much of like business books that you read. Um, and then I think I saw it was, either it was today or it was the other day where you were talking about... Um, solutions thinking at scale which led me to think you seem to me to be somebody who does a lot of systems thinking um a lot of thinking with regards to how to not only solve the problem now but to kind of make sure that you have things in place to ensure that if we encounter this again we're not figuring it out with the same level of like difficulty again so do you mind just talking to us a little bit about like how it's been in this role and how you're thinking or what you've been able to implement as as a thinker, you know, um, how that has helped you in this role, how you've been able to implement stuff like systems thinking and solutioning um, in this role, how that that's helped you overall. Um, okay, so one thing I'm going to talk about is you've mentioned that um, I've read a lot. I used to read a lot more, um, but now I'm like, I'm a little more picky with regards to the things that I read. Um, And interestingly, Mm -hmm. that whatever problem or challenge you're facing, there's a book for that. Books let you know that you're not alone in so many of the cases, that you're not the only person grieving or you're not the only person failing. And today with the internet, whole access to, to information and having the ability to read like whatever book out there, actually overwhelms me so many of the time that I end up reading nothing because I have access to everything. Mm. So um, I've started in this blog to, um, I was reading literature a lot and I would Mm -hmm. basically reflect on those stories in my blog and like write, I used to write a lot in Arabic, I write in English as well, and sort of reflect on those lessons learned and stories and examples on those, whether they're books or, or novels. And I was like, as my personality was growing and changing and with work, I've started to read more, for example, business books, let's say. So having access to those resources has helped me a lot, like being inspired by um, other business leaders. Uh, sure, they, they're they coming from a different context, but at the same time, I 
see that there are a lot of similarities in the challenges that we face. Like, for example, as a manager, as a leader, mm. um, if you are a first-time manager, if you've never led a team before, um, so there are certain things or certain behaviors that you're going to continue doing unless you either receive solid feedback or you read somewhere yeah. and somebody highlighted it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So reading has always been very important. At the same time, I like being committed to something, um, which is for me, like, I like writing. I like to write and I like having inspiration to write. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, which which is something I have learned that inspiration, you know, I, I think it's a quote by Picasso, which says, uh, inspiration has to find you working. And I found my inspiration, whether from my daily experiences or from the books, the books I was reading. Um, so uh, one thing I've implemented was reading at least one book per month, like to become very focused and immersed in that book. Like I would reread certain pages. I would go back to it. Like I would like really immense myself in that experience. And then once I'm done, I would write a review. And the thing is like, I don't know if this is fate or this is happens to everyone. But the thing is, like, whenever I'm reading something, I would come through a personal experience that aligns with what this author is saying. Um, so I would always yeah. connect what I'm reading to the experiences that I'm going through. So um, this has yeah. helped me a lot. Yeah. And I've never really started this whole blog thing because I wanted to become quote-unquote famous or to build a brand or all of that because I know, like, Many people now like write on LinkedIn or create their own blogs because they want to create a name for themselves in a certain field or a certain niche. But I remember doing out of absolute joy because I love doing this. So I did Mm it. And interestingly, I was putting those blogs out there. I think I started back in 2018. Obviously, I don't write for money. But the thing is that it has happened so many times and I've had like so many writing opportunities, which paid me at the time. Because, of, because they knew that I could write and it sort of became a thing that I am known for, um, whether in my city or yeah. in, in the field in, in general. So um, writing has been very helpful. Yeah. And I don't remember the question you've asked, but I think um, highlighting <laughs> things sometimes, like things you do out of absolute joy could end up opening so many opportunities for you. Absolutely. And even today, I think you guys recognize me from my writing, like whether it's LinkedIn or my blog or um, so I think. Yeah. And I'm becoming more intentional now. um, But back then it wasn't something intentional. It was something that I did for absolute. Mm-hmm. I definitely enjoyed reading um, some of your your writings and your articles on the Medium. And just quickly for our listeners who may not be aware, um, Medium is an open platform, so it's a publication platform. I think over it, it attracts over 100 million readers, I believe, worldwide. And it's sort of a popular yeah. space that allows like freelance writers to come on board and just you know share vital critical stories and you know and experiences and in, in some of Tim's experiences like she just mentioned a lot of times through her reading different lit- literatures it inspired you know her blog posting and the writing that she had produced um for medium so that's just that for um our listeners yeah. who may not be aware what medium is also um i think that what you just said you know you started off as a personal passion you know creative outlet for yourself that you never you didn't imagine that it could actually generate funding for you or, you know, or even um, 
visibility and things like that because you're just doing it out of your own passion, yeah. right? And I think this is what's so important. Um, the space that Benji and I are trying to sort of create with a series of Anne's podcast is to show that women are multifaceted, right? We're multidimensional. Yeah. We don't just stick to one thing and one career path and one, you know, and one solutions, you know, in our life. We're allowed to explore all the different areas and all the different sides of who we are as women. That's what makes us dynamic women um, and women who are also privileged yeah. in their own right. And I feel like you've been able to carve out that space for you through your writing, through your blog, through your freelance, you know, um, storytelling that you've, you know, you've produced has brought you that, um, you know, sort of revenue as well, but also brought you the attention, the visibility to your amazing work. And that just shows you how you can turn your creative passion into a side hustle. Cause you know, Tam, it's great to be women's rights and fight the power, but you know, it's also great to get paid in the process. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> period period let's be, let's be serious about this <laughs> we're at the stage in our podcast where we are going to be talking dollars and cents i am going to be asking the questions that is on everybody's mind how much does a chief of staff in a health technology company make and it's important for us to have this conversation with regards to finances especially because in Africa, women are generally told, you know, you must be humble. You must be very in the background. Why would you be talking about something as dirty as money? But then money makes the world go round. Like somebody needs to be paying for these bills, right? And I also look at it from the perspective of somebody who's coming up from university. If you're thinking about what major should I get into? How did Tam make it at 27 to this like really critical role? So what was that like? Um, how were you able to negotiate? We really just want to encourage a culture of transparency with regards to financing. So now the way I work, I no longer, like back when I was just starting out, I would um, I would get paid per article, for example, or content creation for a certain mm-hmm. platform, all of that. But mm-hmm. now I've sort of shifted that because it, because I feel like I'm a more professional person, I, I started to take on those roles at, from a, um, a consultancy perspective. Um, so we're talking about 500 USD, let's say per month for a part-time mm-hmm. consultancy um, project, like whether it's in, in marketing or it's usually overall operations. And that's something I've started navigating like a while ago because um, and again, as you've mentioned earlier, when it comes to implementing frameworks, so I no longer have to, you know, like how in big consultancy companies, they have these frameworks that they work with. So I've started yeah. creating my own. So it's easier for me to take on more projects mm-hmm. that would take less mental capacity from me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I them as like not even part-time positions but maybe something I do like I give up to two three hours during the week and that's it um Mm -hmm. so that's another thing that's been um yeah okay no and, and that's perfectly fine like I said for us it's more of just showing that it doesn't really matter where we used to be, where we're moving is more in terms of like the transparency, but I totally understand. Are you able to share like what you made at SheCodes? Cause it's going to be a different ball game than what you are 
working on right now? Or, or, or do we just want to stay away? It, it's fine. Either way, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So the way I work with, with Chief Codes is that I work per project. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, it's mostly volunteer work because, as I've mentioned, um, to this moment, I still volunteer, and this is something I tell. Ah, okay. Um, and I don't know, like, maybe you have some other opinions, but a lot of the times when I see an organization, for example, and I know, so for example, in the case of SheCodes, they have been very pivotal in my career. So I feel like I have this connection with them, help them with any given project. So a lot of it is volunteer work. Um, sometimes we work like whenever we, they have like a, a funded project and a lot of the time the projects aren't funded, they're based on um, from volunteers. But for, um, for, for funded projects, think about maybe, um, let's say, working for um, a commitment for four months or, or five months, we're talking about maybe 2K USD. Yeah, I think I think that's. And to, to take into consideration also, like the, um, there is no transparency, let's say, when it comes to salaries in, in Libya. So, for example, when you're working for a local organization, so when we're talking about like the average salaries in Libya, when you say that somebody is getting 500 USD per month, um, so I think we're talking about um, how many in a year? But we were talking about somebody making five hundred. Oh, like it's, oh, oh, you're, oh, you're, oh, sorry. You're talking about if somebody made five hundred USD, that's about six thousand dollars a year. Exactly, and and this person in Libya is considered mm -hmm. like a very well-paid person. So yeah. Um, mm. yeah, context is important. Yeah, yeah. So as I've mentioned, like um, in Libya, unfortunately, the 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 workforce is undervalued a lot of the time. I remember like the other yeah. day, there was this company who are hiring for a, um, for a marketing person and they were expecting this person to, for example, like set up the strategies, prepare the content, literally take it, this person would take photos, they would make the graphic designs, they would write the social media content and they would post it and like, mm -hmm. and this person is going to be paid less than what I've just mentioned um so we're talking about like 250 usd like so so what? The, the, the value of what a human being can deliver is still very undervalued and and i don't know it's it's too many reasons like now because of like so many young people are in charge they sort of value these things but when we're talking about like older mm. people hiring they would expect certain things yeah. to just magically so um, they were, uh, and it was crazy. Like the call for applicants was like, we want a writer plus graphic designer plus photographer plus videographer. <laughs> so it's um, wow. So, it's, so, ba so um, basically, it, you manage all of the content creation plus community management for two hundred and fifty US dollars. My God, no way. No way, no way. That's cr that's crazy. People don't even make 250 on an Instagram post. What? Exactly. That's, but, that's wild. But the thing is that um, uh, there are, like, I'm happy that now with social media, people are talking about salaries and what is fair. Um, because I remember, like, yeah. the other day there was a post 
um, going viral, um, um, there was like this very well-established store that was hiring for, um, um, I think it was a customer service position that basically had working hours from, I think, nine to five. And like the salary was crazy. It was, they were hiring for a, uh, for a female and mm-hmm. the salary was 500 Libyan dinars. And if you change that to USD, it's around 100 USD per month. And oh no! Uh, and then like they were they, apology like after like the post went viral and people were saying like you're taking advantage of women and if this was a man taking the position, mm-hmm. then the salary would have been yeah. a lot different. I'm I'm sad obviously because of the um the thought of the post or the position itself, but at the same time I'm happy because it created some sort of conversation around the topic so, mm-hmm. so so that's one thing um another thing worth mentioning so in in our society we don't have the concept of gender inequality when it comes to uh, when it comes to financial compensation but there's an unwritten rule in certain um in certain areas or fields where i remember like when i was working at a local pharmacy like the the men make double what the women are making mm. even if they're doing the same thing because men are willing to negotiate their offers and they would know like for example especially when it comes to um, yeah so for example when it comes to career choices and i'm talking here more about um, pharmaceutical sciences because that's the background I'm coming from mm-hmm. um, so men would have more options like they would work with pharmaceutical companies they but for women especially those who come from conservative families that wouldn't allow them to work at those companies or they're not allowed to drive a car that because the, the job requires a lot of movement so they know that women are more desperate for the job and they would because they're more desperate they're willing to be paid uh, less so um mm, so that's wow. so they're taking and, a, they're taking advantage then exactly yeah. and and, yeah. and they know that women are more professional they're more likely and again i'm saying this uh not backed by data but backed by personal opinion um that women yeah, would, yeah. are more likely to show on time to be more professional to less to create less trouble overall uh, less negotiation uh, so uh, yeah wow no thank you so much for sharing you know the sharing that level of transparency and your background yeah. and context with us and from your own sort of personal experience and observation within the Libri- the Libyan context so Tim I'd like to um, trans- transition a little I'd like to know um, have you experienced any sort of discriminatory practices as a hijab wearing woman? And if so, what like what were some of those experiences, and how did you sort of tackle and you know and address it? So I remember I came across like this one incident where I felt like this is discrimination. <laughs> um, back when back in twenty twenty like during my um, Tech Woman Fellowship. Um, so we were supposed to mm-hmm. um, to travel from Libya to the US and we don't have international flights. So I basically had to travel from Libya to, to, to Tunis to France and then from France to the US. So first of all, 
traveling as a woman alone in Libya is still considered something that would raise some eyebrows. Like, for example, okay. when you're at the airport, people will be saying like, um, you could get like even some questions. And I was just talking to my sister earlier about this, like authority at the airport could ask you like, why are you traveling alone? Why don't you have a companion? And all of that. Oh, wow. So that's in 2023? In 2023. As I've mentioned, like you could learn to live with a lot of those situations, but at the same time, it's something that's counted because you would, like, if you're a man, you wouldn't be having people asking you the same questions. So that one thing. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, on that same trip, it was my first time traveling alone. Um, mm -hmm. During that same trip, um, when we were um, transiting from uh, Tunis to um, to France, and I remember like um, we came as a group um, coming in from Libya, from Tunis. I remember we've had I think others. I'm not sure, maybe from Morocco. I don't know. So I was as we're going over mm -hmm. the um, security check in. Number one, because whether it was myself or um, some of the the friends I was fly flying with, um, mainly because we were Libyan. Number one, number two, because we were wearing the hijab, um, mm -hmm. we were told, like, frankly, I want you to move here and we need to do, like, extra security oh check-in. But at the same time, it's very humiliating um, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. because of what you're wearing or um, where you're from, you, you, you yep. could actually sense that you're being treated less, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, yeah, absolutely. It does. It's, it's targeted. You know you're being targeted. You know exactly why you're being targeted. And like you said, it, it's completely disrespectful. It undermines sort of, you know, your humanity, you know, and your own rights. Yeah. Um, so how did you navigate that experience? Because I think it definitely affects your emotional well-being, you know? So one thing, as you grow up as a, a woman in Libya, you grow to become very resilient <laughs> to uh, to those factors and mm. even if it makes mm. you upset you like this is nothing um i'm on this trip and i'm on this wonderful experience and i'm not gonna let that very inconvenient encounter ruin my day because i know this is happening because for example this person is racist and it's not because right. yeah. I am less of a human being. It's more on them than it is yeah. on, on myself. So I think it's all about learning how to not low, let things that you cannot control ruin your day, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, something yeah. like the hijab, right, is something that, like, like immediately sets you apart, right? Because I can walk around and my skin will set me apart. And, and that's something that I have to live with. I can't change. I can't, I can't edit this. Right. Um, but I always feel like there's, there's an added pressure on women who wear the hijab because wearing hijab is an option. Like you choose to wear hijab, especially depending on, um, which Arab nation you're from. It's a choice. It's not something that is imposed in most places. And I think a lot of people who are external to those situations don't really understand that as a Muslim woman, you get to choose and it means something to you that you are wearing hijab, you know? And I think it's, it's so unfortunate that instead of, 
of the world in 2023, like stopping and actually understanding what it represents, what it like, what does it mean to you to be wearing this? It becomes a symbol of othering. It's one thing to be discriminated against because of your skin, but now layer on nationality, layer on uh, religion, <laughs> culture, that just th takes things to a whole other ball game, you know? So it's, it's very, very important what you've shared with us today. So I know patience is always somebody who asks this question, um, but how is it that with all of this, on your shoulders, not only are you chief of staff, not only are you a woman, a Muslim woman navigating our world, how is it do you get to actually unwind? How do you unwind? How do you take care of yourself? How do you love on Tam? So that's something um, I am trying to, to learn as I go, but I think like when it comes to personal life and well-being, let's say, um, mm -hmm. it's very important for me to set certain targets or certain objectives to achieve. And it's similar to what I do with my um, with my work and, and my career in general. So for example, I make sure that um, I meet with a friend every two weeks and I make sure to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I, for example, read a book for 30 minutes. I take a walk for an hour or 30 minutes on a, on a daily basis. So mm -hmm. Creating those habits and, and making sure that I mm -hmm. stick to them, even when I feel like I'm not going to do it today, but I end up doing it because yeah. I know that I've set this goal because it's going to help me become uh, more relaxed or it's something that's yeah. going to um, disconnect, as I mentioned, like whether it's a day with a family, whether it's completely disconnecting um, on Fridays, whether it's... Um, yeah meeting your reading goal or your your um, walking goal. So um, for me, it's really about maintaining certain habits and um, I make sure that I do not miss them for more than um, two times in a row um, has helped me like to, I'm trying to become more disciplined as I am to my work, yeah. um, to my and um, to my relationships. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like um, that. I like that because sometimes people think that like um, life will happen to you. You know what I mean? People think that like oh, you'll wake up one day and become this voracious reader or this really healthy person. And it's like, no, you actually have to be intentional about getting these things done. And I love how you, you put the parallel with your work, because at least to me, you sound like somebody who is extremely disciplined and regimented in your work life and being able to apply that same discipline to your personal life in terms of like scheduling the time and and not giving yourself the chance to like not do something more than two times like that is discipline because at the end of the day like you you have to train your body to not only be successful in the workplace but like this is the vessel that is supposed to carry you through that whole process and if you're not taking care of your body and your mind then expecting to still be as productive and as excellent in your workplace like that that's that's a pipe dream at this point. So I, I appreciate how you, you know you, how you've shared how it is you take care of yourself, especially in you know the busy job and busy life that you have over in Benghazi. 
Sam, you know, thank you. Just thank you so much. Just such being a, such a, a, a dynamic, you know, woman uh, for us to sort of explore your journey and your experiences thus far at the age of 27. You have definitely surpassed and accomplished so much. And oh, yeah. we can only imagine, you know, what the future holds for you and what is yet to come. For all the little Tams in Libya, and other little Tams in Congo, in Liberia, Tunisia, Kenya, wherever they may be across the continent, what would be your parting word of inspiration and motivation for them? Mm-hmm. And then two, what excites you, like, you know, about African women, you know, our, our the new wave of African women across our continent and also within Libya? Mm-hmm. So for, for young girls, but I would say is to never underestimate your potential like no dream is too Mm. big and and i think this is this becomes more tangible as you have certain dreams come to life yeah um so i remember like when i was a little child i have dreamed about certain places that like this is my dream and and once you and once you achieve like at least one dream you're going to think, hey, it's not as difficult as I thought it is. Like, literally everything is possible. And I know, like, so many people say this, but everything is possible. Like, you know how how it sounds when they say the sky is the limit. You can be anything. (laughs) I remember I was inspired by um, a TikTok video by a little child. Like, he was encouraging his mom and he was telling her, like, you could be anything. You could be the president. Uh-huh. And I was like, yes, you, you could literally be anything. And what is more important is for you to constantly make sure that you're doing something that is not in a sense frightening you, but um, could be frightening. Um, but you have to constantly challenge yourself. One thing I've always um, had in mind was that when I look at professionals, I would think like these people know what they're doing because I've started to work more and collaborate with some like international experts, you would you would notice that a lot of the time people have no idea what they're doing. So um yeah. so you're <laughs> fake it till you make it, my guy. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> Everybody's faking it. Everybody assumes that they know that they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so put yourself in positions to challenge yourself to um, to not necessarily have the confidence, but have the the grit to take on challenges and to challenge yourself and to seek new opportunities and to be open to those opportunities yeah. and to not limit yourself in a box like this is what i mm-hmm. want to do so this is the only things i'm going to take on um what has helped me a lot was always yeah. being curious like okay i wanted to work in this field but i was always curious about trying out other things so it's always important mm-hmm. and everybody at the end of the day has their own narrative and their own story which is gonna align at the end so you can think of it as your you have like multiple lines in parallel which are gonna meet at the end and sort of craft that narrative for you yeah so it's very important staying curious and seeing open and the sex the second part of her question was what excites you most about african women what excites me most is that about african women um in libya was mm-hmm. that 
we grew up in very challenging environments. Like we've been through conflict, we've been through mm-hmm. wars, we live in um, in context of very limited resources. There are places, at least in Libya, where they have access to no electricity. Sometimes, um, sometimes there are wars going on, and you would still see women doing their thing, like whether it's going to yeah. school or going to universities. I know friends who would travel every day just to go to university. Um, mm. My mom would travel like with her dad every day to go to school. So going through those mm. challenges and still being able to create something um, is, is, um, is not something that you see everywhere. So um, what excites me the most is um, having the resilience to start all over again and to continue to do what you do, despite the challenges that you go through, whether it's um, security issues or um, society issues. Um, but mm. but as I mentioned earlier in my talk, that you learn to not overcome them, but sort of navigate your way through them and to not let them yeah. stop you, find you. And I've seen this example with so many incredible women, which either um, colleagues or best friends or or mentors, uh, but they're breaking barriers, and um, and I'm so happy to be with um, two amazing African women today on this um, talk, and to just contribute to the incredible mission that you guys have. No, that's perfectly said. Honestly, there's really nothing else to add. We are so honored, literally so honored, to have had you over on the podcast. And as we wrap up. We would love it if you could share any social media handles, any medium links, anything that you want, any emails, LinkedIn profiles that you want us to share with um, our audience because we believe in connection. You've talked about community um, multiple times over on the podcast. So feel free to share with us um, what your Instagram handle is, what your LinkedIn profile name is, medium handles are, and then this way our audience can know how best to find you. Oh, thank you. We're honored and pleasured to be here. So my LinkedIn handle is Tamadir al-Mahdi, like the way my name is is written. Um, mm-hmm. For for me, you can actually find the link at my LinkedIn profile as well. So oh instead God. of me actually spilling. No worries about it. We are so, so excited. Guys, We this is it. I think patience is always the one who wraps us up by saying, you know, people are always asking, where are the African women? Where are the women? And today, not only have we brought you an African woman who's brought you a woman who is so intersectional in terms of who she is and what it is that she does. So thank you once again, Tamadur, for being with us here on a series of ands. We've added show notes below for our differently abled audiences to listen to and to read through. Um, if there was something that you missed, feel free to check out our description box. And um, yeah, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another African woman showing us that we're all a series of ands. So go on and be all that you can be. Thank you, bye. Shukra, Tom, Shukra, Tam.